You take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, if you're using these black Bibles, and, and we have many of these Bibles scattered throughout the sanctuary underneath the seats in front of you, uh, you will find uh, Acts 7 on page uh, 860, Acts 7. Now, uh, folks, I don't think I have ever done this before in all my time of preaching here at Harvest Community Baptist Church, but this is a first. I guarantee you that you are going to hear an absolutely amazing, incredible, mind-blowing sermon today. It's going to be awesome. I can't guarantee you that my sermon is going to be any good, but you'll at least hear one sermon that is good. So praise God for that, as this morning we turn our attention to the sermon of Stephen. And we have the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And the the theological and Christological content of Stephen's sermon is absolutely explosive, and it's going to mark a major transition in the book of Acts, and it'll mark Christianity's decisive break from Judaism, and it'll become the catalyst for the greatest missionary expansion ever. Now, Stephen's sermon does not come in a vacuum. Stephen's actually on trial before the Sanhedrin, which is the most powerful uh, judicial body in first century Israel outside of the Romans. And why is he on trial? Well, as the opening of a, of a TV show might say, previously in Acts, uh, the resurrected Jesus told his disciples that they would be his special messengers, his witnesses proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God starting in Jerusalem and spreading to the ends of the earth. And over the first few chapters of Acts, we see that gospel witness in Jerusalem as thousands and thousands of people respond to the good news that though man is guilty of sin and and deserving of God's wrath, Jesus became a substitute for the guilty and died on the cross to receive God's wrath in our place so that whoever by faith receives Jesus as leader and savior, can be forgiven and made a citizen of God's kingdom now with the promise of a future consummated kingdom in the age to come where there's no more sorrow or suffering or sickness or death. But the Jewish religious authorities, the same ones who uh, murdered Jesus, by the way, uh, these guys, they rise up in opposition to the apostles and, uh, and, and to the Jerusalem church. In fact, they're so filled with jealousy that they throw the apostles in prison, severely beating them and commanding them not to preach Christ anymore. But of course, they don't listen. They keep on preaching, and the church keeps on growing. In Acts 6, we meet Stephen, a deacon in the Jerusalem church, and it turns out he has a powerful evangelistic ministry, and the opponents of the gospel begin to focus on him. Uh, They enter into theological debates with Stephen, but they're unable to overcome any of, of Stephen's arguments. And so in frustration, they stir up lies and slander against him, and they bring him before an already biased Sanhedrin. And there's two main charges that they accuse him of. You can read about that first charge in Acts 6.13, where his opponents say that this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. That's the temple. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, this is a serious charge. 
The temple was the center of worship in Jerusalem. It was the heart of their religion. Every year, thousands of Jews from all over the Roman world would make pilgrimages to the temple to be close to God. And in the mind of the the first century Jew, if you take away the temple, we've got nothing. We have no access to God. We have no means of sacrifice. And that, by the way, is probably what his opponents were referring to when they charged Stephen about changing the customs that Moses delivered to us. Uh, Certainly the message of Stephen and the apostles would have included the fact that the gospel makes the temple sacrifices obsolete. That would have been alarming to many Jews. A sacrifice means no access to God. No access to God means being barred from the presence of God, being distant from God, not being able to experience God uh, to the full, even being cut off from the salvation of God. Taking away the temple, it's pretty much like taking away God from them. It's a serious charge. You wonder, where, where did they get this idea that Jesus was talking about destroying the temple? Well, Jesus did use language about the destruction of the temple. He actually used the words, destroy this temple. And when folks heard that, that was all they heard. And as far as they were concerned, that was all they needed to hear. Uh, The second charge is that Stephen is blaspheming Moses. Moses was the great lawgiver of Israel. He was the great mediator between God and God's people, the most highly revered prophet in Israel. And the Jewish leader saw Stephen's Christ-centered gospel preaching as a rejection of Moses, the preeminent uh, leader and preeminent prophet of Israel. And to speak against Moses was to speak against God's law, and to speak against God's laws to speak against God. So, so you got those two charges. Really, those charges can be summed up in one word blasphemy, and the penalty for blasphemy is death. And Stephen now is is standing before the Sanhedrin, and really he's stepping into the lion's den to be questioned about these charges and and realize that in their minds, Stephen is guilty until proven innocent. But Stephen's response is absolutely amazing. Even though the Jewish authorities think that they are putting Stephen on trial, it's going to turn out that Stephen, in his response is going to step into the role of prosecuting attorney, and and it's going to turn out that they are the ones that are on trial, and the final verdict will not be in their favor. So let's read this amazing sermon from Stephen and see what God has to say to us through it. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our great and glorious God. This is Acts chapter 7, and uh, we're going to start in in verse 1. Uh, this, and we're going to go all the way through the first part of uh, chapter 8, verse 1. This is a long section. I'd actually thought about kind of breaking up the readings throughout the service this morning, but I, I think that um, it's best to read it all just in one sitting and just really get the, the impact and the power of what Stephen is saying. And as, as we're reading this together, I want you to be thinking in your mind, what in the world does this all have to do with the charges that had been laid before them, before, before Stephen, because that can be confusing to some folks. I want you to think about it, and we'll talk about it in a moment. Acts chapter 7, the Word of God says, The high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. 
Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, and said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all the afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. And when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob and his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased, multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wronged, he defended and oppressed the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of fire, in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? 
This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship, to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joseph when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, They were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on me this morning, a sinner who comes before you with the awesome privilege of expositing God's word. It's not to be taken lightly. Father, help me. 
Help me. Father, have mercy on the congregation here. Help them to have ears to hear what the Spirit has to say this morning. And bless our time together. And above all, may the name of Jesus be exalted in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I have a confession to make. There was a time where I viewed life as a story, and I saw myself as the main character of that story, and I saw all of y'all as supporting cast members in that story. Some of you might have been important, but at the end of the day, it was ultimately about me. We all have a tendency to view life in that way. We are the center of the story. We are the main character. We are the hero of the story. We never see ourselves as side characters with minor roles in somebody else's story. And we certainly never see ourselves as villains in the story. Now, we're right about one thing when we think that way. Life is a story. There are characters in that story, and there's a plot line. But we are wrong in that we miss the plot. We don't get the story. We don't recognize what it is all about. And this is the underlying point in Stephen's address to the Sanhedrin, an address that really confounds many commentators uh, who feel like Stephen is dodging the question, kind of like a filibuster, right? He's standing before the the Sanhedrin. He's asked a, a couple of simple questions And he just talks on and on and on in kind of this long-winded speech. And he goes into history and names and places and situations that his audience was already familiar with. What's the point of it? Is there a point? There is. Stephen is actually answering his opponents directly. He's answering them by telling them the story of history and showing them the major plot lines which all will culminate in one big point. And in the process, Stephen is going to turn the tables on his accusers. He he essentially uh, tells them, uh, you say, I'm guilty in regards to the temple, and I'm guilty in regards to the law of God. Actually, it's you who are guilty of these things. You don't understand the temple, and you don't keep God's law. Now, Stephen's going to make his case by dividing up the history of Israel into four epochs, four, four periods of time. And in each time period, he's going to bring forward evidence to build his case. And so he starts with Exhibit A, Abraham. Exhibit A, Abraham. In Acts chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest asks Stephen, are these things so? And you'd think that a simple yes or no answer would be the appropriate response to the question. But instead, Stephen says, brothers and fathers... By the way, no, he, he starts out very respectful to, I mean, he's got some hard words to say to them later, but he, he's very respectful. Brothers, fathers, uh, remember we learned last week, Stephen is a man who's full of the Holy Spirit and full of grace. He's not belligerent, he's not obnoxious. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. And, and I notice that, notice what Stephen says. He says, the God of glory appeared to Abraham. When the Jews heard that word glory, they would think in particular of God's Shekinah glory, which was the overwhelmingly brilliant manifestation of the presence of God. That word Shekinah means dwelling. 
and it signified the glory of God dwelling with his people. In fact, one of the most famous appearances of that glory cloud is in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, where the temple is dedicated. And we're told in 2 Chronicles that the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And so God dwelled with his people, his presence and his Holy Spirit filling that temple, which was seen as the locus of God's favor and blessing. But here, though, it's interesting, Stephen reaches back centuries before the temple to the time of Abraham, and he reminds his accusers that the presence of God is not restricted to a building. He's not even restricted to the land of Israel, which is significant, because in addition to the temple being regarded by the Jews as sacred space, so the land that the temple was in, in the land of Canaan or Israel, uh, that was likewise sacred space. It was regarded as holy ground. But Stephen says, Abraham encountered the glory of God, not in the temple, not even in Israel, but while he was in a pagan land. You see, God's not limited to a zip code. In the next few verses, Stephen recounts God's promise to Abraham of offspring and a land for that offspring. But, but how does Abraham himself relate to God? God talks about a land for Abraham's offspring, but verse 5, God gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, <clears throat> but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. Even when Abraham gets to the land, he actually doesn't possess the land. So how does Abraham relate to God? Not on the basis of a temple or in actually possessing the land. He relates to God on the basis of a covenant promise that he believes. His relationship with God does not hinge on sacred space. It hinges on on saving faith. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. As Abraham journeyed from place to place as a sojourner, as a pilgrim, God was with him every step of the way. Even though there was no temple, even though Abraham did not own a foot's length of the land, but God was with him as Abraham by faith looked ahead to a better country, the author of Hebrews tells us, that is a heavenly one. So Israel's experience with the God of glory did not begin with a temple. And it didn't even begin in the land of Canaan. It began with Abraham hearing and believing a promise and moving forward in faith. And that's crucial in Stephen's argument because his opponents are tying God's presence to the temple itself. And so this important theme of God's presence with his people, apart from the temple, will continue through Stephen's speech. But we'll also be introduced to a second theme as he moves on in history as Stephen gives us Exhibit B, the 12 patriarchs. Exhibit B, the 12 patriarchs. The 12 sons of Jacob become the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Stephen notes in verse nine that these Israelite brothers were jealous of their younger brother, Joseph. Now, 
This introduces a second theme that runs parallel with the theme of God's presence not being restricted to a temple. And it's the theme of God raising up chosen leaders and saviors who bring God's word to Israel and Israel's response to those leaders. If you recall the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, God had appointed Joseph to save Israel from perishing. God had also given Jacob divine revelation, a dream, a word from God, a word that said that he would be exalted to a position of leadership over his brothers. And this stirs up the jealousy of his brothers. They they can't stand the idea of Joseph ruling over them. They want to be in charge. They want to be in control. And they get angry. Not only do they hate Joseph, but this is important as well, they hate the dreams that God gave Joseph. And so they plot against Joseph. And do you remember what the brothers said about this? In Genesis 37, 20, they said, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. They mock And they reject the very revelation of God, the very word of God. They want nothing to do with God's word that is telling them something that they don't want to hear. And they try to keep God's word, God's plan from coming to fruition. And so they betray one of their own. They betray the one that was appointed to save them for a few shekels of silver. Sound familiar? That thematic note is going to become increasingly prominent in Stephen's speech as he goes on. They sell him into slavery, but look at the end of verse 9. Nevertheless, God was with him, Stephen says. That's huge. God was with him. If you know the story of Joseph, he was a slave. He was falsely accused. He was thrown in prison. And yet through all his hardships and afflictions, Stephen says God was with him. And with him where? Not at the temple, which won't be built for centuries, Not in the promised land, which Israel still does not possess, but in Egypt. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, Egypt is not good. Egypt is bad. Egypt is pagan. Egypt is anti-God. Egypt defies God. If there was any place that God would not be, you would think that it would be Egypt. And yet God is there with Joseph. His favor and blessing are all over Joseph because God is not restricted to one location. His blessing is not limited to a building. And God exalts Joseph to be the ruler in Egypt. And at first, Joseph's brothers don't recognize him. But later, he reveals himself to them, and then they know. And in verse 14, the rest of Joseph's family joins him in Egypt to escape the famine. And the one that the brothers rejected... The one they did not recognize at first turns out to be the one that brings salvation to the people. The children of Israel leave the sacred space, they leave Canaan, and it is in Egypt of all places where Israel is blessed by God and preserved. But Steve is not done with his argument. He fast forwards in history to exhibit C. Exhibit C, and this is Moses. We find in verse 17 that the descendants of those 12 patriarchs, while slaves in Egypt, have nevertheless increased and multiplied in Egypt. They're thriving. 
And that language of multiplying is reminiscent of the book of Genesis where being fruitful and multiplying is associated with the favor and the blessing of God. So again, in Egypt, God continues to be present, very present with his people. Likewise, God is present with Moses in verses 19 through 22 as God saves Moses' life and, 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 and is with Moses even in the household of Pharaoh as he becomes equipped with wisdom and might. And then in verse 23 it says, and when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Now, that word visit is interesting. When, when it talks about he decides to, to, to visit, it's, it's not simply Moses wanting to just kind of drop in for a casual, you know, meet up here. Hey, how's it going, Israel? I'm Moses. Just came by for a visit. So that's not, that's not what it means there. That, that, that language of visitation That's an echo of Genesis 50, verse 25, where Joseph on his deathbed tells his Israelite brothers that one day God will surely visit you. Uh, The idea of visitation connotes God's deliverance. In fact, this is the exact kind of language used in Luke 168, where Zechariah, celebrating the coming of Christ, says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And so in the person of Moses, we actually see both of Stephen's themes coming together, uh, the theme of God being with his people and the theme of God raising up an appointed leader and savior. And, and, when, God, and when Moses comes to visit his brothers, he comes to deliver them from Israelite bondage. Verse 24 says, and seeing one of them wronged, Moses defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now often when Christians read about this account of Moses killing the Egyptian in Exodus 3, they see Moses as being a bad guy, as someone who who is sinfully uh, lashing out in anger and is guilty of murder. And and so you hear people say things like, well, God, God used Moses and he was a murderer. And if God can use a murderer, he can use somebody like you. God God can use anybody. And that, that is probably a point that has been dropped in thousands of sermons. <laughs> maybe, maybe sometime, a long time ago, I even said something like that. I don't know. But, but the Bible never looks at Moses in that way. The Bible never calls Moses a murderer. Here's a, here's, a, here's a little tip here. Always let the New Testament lead you in how you think about and interpret the stories of the Old Testament. Best, best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. And here, Stephen does not see Moses as a murderer. By the way, if he did, it would just blow apart so many of the points that Stephen's trying to make here. Stephen does not see Moses as a murderer. He sees him as a deliverer. And he sees him as a deliverer that the people do not recognize. That's the point of verse 25. It says that Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Moses thinks that they will recognize the day of their visitation, but in verse 27, Moses is thrust aside and is told, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Who do you think you are? Just as Israel rejected Joseph, Now Moses is rejected by the people that he came to save. He is thrust aside. And like Joseph, his brothers did not recognize him. And like Joseph, Moses now becomes an exile. 
Well, the story now jumps ahead 40 years. Moses is 80 years old, and, and we see that brilliant Shekinah glory of God appearing again. It appears to, to Moses in the burning bush. And in verse 33, God there is present, and he says to Moses, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. This is a holy place. Very interesting especially when you consider the charge against Stephen back in the last chapter that Stephen is speaking against this holy place, against the temple. But Stephen, again, is making the point that God isn't restricted to that building. Anywhere that God appears to his people in a special way, to do a special work in and through them, is holy, is a holy place. Verse 34, Stephen quotes God as saying, I have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. God has come to be with his people, not to the temple and not in Israel, but in Egypt. In verse 35, Stephen begins to ramp up his argument. He says, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Stephen is saying that though Israel rejected God's appointed prophet and deliverer, God put his stamp of approval on Moses through signs and wonders. Sound familiar? God has endorsed and exalted the rejected one. Sound familiar? Verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness when the angel who spoke to him at Mount, with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. The, the, the word, the very word of God came from heaven to Moses and Moses was to give God's word, God's law to the people. Verse 39, again, our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts They turned to Egypt. Even though Moses delivered them from Egyptian slavery, even though he was attested to by God with signs and wonders and miracles, nevertheless, he says, their hearts turned to Egypt. You see, while Moses was up on the mountain receiving God's law, God's word, they got impatient with him. They didn't want to wait for him to come down with God's word because because there was deep in their hearts an idolatrous longing for something other than the one true God. And so the first chance that they get, the first moment they're out of Moses' sight, they're like little kids when mom and dad isn't watching. First chance they get, they ditch Moses. They ditch God. And they create a golden calf. They trade in the glory of God for a metal cow and worship it instead. And the end of verse 41 says that they offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Put a pin in that phrase, rejoicing in the works of their hands. We'll come back to that in a bit. Here the the sinful bent of the human heart is exposed in all of its ugliness. We say that we want God. We say that we love God. We we say that we worship and appreciate God, and yet the first chance we get, we bolt and run from God. That's what Israel did. That's what we all do, apart from the grace of God working in our hearts. Stephen said, in their hearts, they turn to Egypt. 
in our hearts, we turn to possessions, to sinful pleasures, to pornography, to the approval of others. Uh, There are all kinds of idols that we construct, trading in the glory of God for lesser things. It's horrifying. It's twisted. And the other horrifying thing is that if a person keeps doing it, God will give them over to it. That's what Stephen shows us here in verse 42. It says, but God turned away and gave them over to the worship, to, wor- to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, that's a fake God, and the star of your God, Rephon, that's a fake God, the images that you made to worship, and, and, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. It's a dangerous thing to keep lusting after your idols. Because if you don't repent of that, if you just keep playing with that, flirting with that, God will eventually give you over to that thing that you want, and it will completely dominate you. That is terrifying. It's really a foretaste of hell. Stephen is saying that that's the history of Israel. And in truth, that's the history of all of mankind. Uh, There's a reason why you have people who for 20, 30, 40, 50 years find themselves enslaved to drugs or totally dominated by sexual lusts or enslaved and controlled by money or a host of other things that are not God. Friend, it is a dangerous thing to keep on rejecting God's word. It's a dangerous thing to say, you know what, I'm going to you know, enjoy myself and have fun now. Maybe later on I will get serious about God. It's a dangerous thing to do that. It's a dangerous thing to keep thrusting aside God's appointed man. God's appointed prophet, God's appointed savior and mediator who brings you the word of God. Stephen's Stephen's audience, by now, might be starting to connect some dots. They might be starting to realize that this is more than just a history lesson reviewing the past and this has nothing to do with us. They may be starting to realize that this is an an accusatory polemic, (laughs) exposing their own hearts in the presence. If they don't realize it yet, they soon will. Well, Stephen now returns to the theme of God's presence. In verse 44, he talks about the tent in the wilderness, the tabernacle, that's what it was called. It was the precursor to the temple. It was literally a giant portable tent. It's a place of worship where, where the glory and presence of God was manifested And as Israel wandered in the wilderness from place to place for 40 years, so the tabernacle went with them. And so God went with them. Again, not restricted to a zip code, but wherever his people went, there he was also. One of the points that Stephen keeps making in this speech is that God is imminent. The imminence of God is a fancy term theologians use to describe God's nearness to his creation. His, his presentness, that may not be a word, but you get the point. God is not a part of creation, but, but he is very present 
in the created world, and, and, and especially relevant for Stephen's purposes, God is very near and very close to his people, wherever they are, in a very special way. God's people can't get away from God. I think of what David said in Psalm 139, Jared read it earlier, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Speaking of David, Stephen finally gets directly to the topic of the temple, and so we come to Exhibit D. David and Solomon, Exhibit D, David and Solomon. Hundreds of years after the establishment of the tabernacle, you can imagine that that old tent is starting to look kind of raggedy and worn out and old. And King David desires to build a more permanent place for God as opposed to that portable tent. And verse 47 says, but it was Solomon who built a house for him, for God. So, so what, what's the issue with the temple. What does Stephen want us to realize in all of this? It's not that God was against the temple or thought that it was bad. I mean, God gave the house of David permission to build the temple. Stephen knew that, and the Sanhedrin knew that. But here's the punchline verse 48 Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What's the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You're trying to build something for me. I built it all for you. (laughs) Stephen had been teaching on God's eminence. Now he's teaching on God's transcendence, which is kind of the opposite of eminence. Yes, God is here. Yes, God is near. God is imminent, but he is simultaneously transcendent, and he is so high and lofty and big. He he can't live in a little building. Heaven is his throne. He props his feet up on planet Earth. He can't be contained. In fact, even Solomon recognized this when after the temple was constructed and and he dedicated the temple with a prayer. And in the prayer, he says in 2 Chronicles 6.18, Behold, Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I built? Solomon got it, even right after he built the temple, and he's looking right at it. Well, all of what Stephen has been saying is leading to one major point as we come to the final verdict. The final verdict. Where's Stephen going with this temple talk? Why is Stephen going out of his way to put the temple in its proper place? Again, not saying that the temple is bad, not saying the temple is unimportant, but putting the temple in its proper place. Why is he doing this? Because the Jewish leaders and many of their followers had made an idol out of the temple. Isn't it interesting that Stephen spends so much time talking about the people's idolatry? Trading in God's holy prophet and redeemer Moses for idols of metal and stone that cannot save them? They put their hope in these things in vain. And is it not interesting in verse 41 that the people's idolatry is described as rejoicing in the work of their hands? And is it not interesting that in verse 48, Stephen drives the point home that the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands? 
See the connections that Stephen is making? They had replaced the golden calf and Moloch and Raphon with the temple. They had exchanged one idol for another. And you say, really, Deemer? That can't be. Oh, no, it, actually, it absolutely can be. <laughs> it can be. Uh, in fact, this pattern had been going on with the Jews for a long time. Centuries before this, the prophet Jeremiah warned about this. Jeremiah 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds. Do not trust in these deceptive words. And what are the deceptive words? This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. What's the point? The point is that the people were living in sin and rebellion against God. And God warned them of judgment, but they weren't worried about it. Why? Because they had the temple. They were trusting in the temple. That was the hope that they had. And they were no better than the pagans trusting in their statues and amulets and talismans. As long as I have this thing, I'm fine and I can do whatever I want. By the way, that is how many people are today. As long as I go to church, I do whatever I want. I'm fine. I was here on Sunday, check. Monday through Saturday, that's me time now. Do whatever I want. As long as I do some religious things, I'm fine. As long as I say I'm a Christian and I give occasional props to God, I'm fine. I just want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave me the talent to make this album, which is full of lyrics that desecrate or denigrate God. We do it all the time. I don't really need to take holy living seriously. I don't really need to follow Jesus seriously. Folks, idolatry isn't just worshiping things that are obviously evil. Idolatry is taking things that can be good in and of themselves and placing your ultimate hope in those things instead of God. Now that, that could be a temple. It could be family. It could be a whole host of things. And our idols actually become convenient ways, very clever ways. We, we sinners are clever. Uh, clever ways for us to avoid God and avoid his law. We don't have to worry about the judgment because we're banking our final hope on this thing or that thing. That's exactly what Stephen's opponents were doing. And Stephen's exposing that. He's showing them that the point of all of, of this history that he has covered, the point about the temple, the point of the law, the point of the promises to Abraham, the point of the leaders and saviors who came before like Joseph and Moses, none of those things were, were ever an end unto themselves. The point of it all has been to point beyond them to Jesus Christ. All of history is his story. Jesus is the main character, and Jesus is the hero. In Matthew 12, Jesus, speaking of himself, said something even greater than the temple is here. Jesus is superior to the temple. Indeed, Jesus is the new temple. Colossians 2.9 says that in Christ... All the fullness of the Godhead dwells. Better than a glory cloud. Better than a burning bush. Better than a building. In Jesus is the fullness of the glory of God. 
Jesus did, did indeed say, by the way, destroy this temple. Do you know he said that? He said those words, destroy this temple. He said in John 2, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus would be killed. Just like those temple lambs were slaughtered, so Jesus would be slaughtered on the cross for the sins of the people. And and Jesus' sacrifice finally and fully did away with the sins that previously denied us access to God. And so guess what? The temple is indeed obsolete because something better than the temple is here. Through Jesus, we can have access to God's presence. Indeed, through Jesus, God himself now intimately dwells not in a building but in the hearts of his people by his Holy Spirit. This is where it gets really interesting as God brings us into his people, into his family. He is building a temple and we are the stones of that temple. The apostle Peter writes about this when he says, you yourselves, church, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, God's house, temple. This room here is not God's house. We are. The people of God are. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Not believing in the temple, believing in him. Stephen's opponents didn't get it. They, they completely misunderstood and misused the physical temple and missed the point of that temple. And when their savior and redeemer came, they did not welcome him. They were jealous of him. Jealous of him. As Israel was jealous of Joseph. They thrust him aside as the people thrust aside Moses. They said, we will not have this man rule over us. Who do you think you are, Jesus? You see, they wanted to be at the center of the story. They didn't want Jesus to be at the center. They wanted it to be all about them. And they loved their sin and idolatry more than Jesus. And so they rejected him. But... Peter said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The most important stone in that temple that God is building, it's not you, it's Jesus. He is the foundation. He is the the cornerstone. Everything depends on and hinges on him. But because they were fixed on lesser things, Stephen's opponents missed the true temple that is Christ's. Likewise with the law, the law of Moses. The law was not an end unto itself. Stephen in his sermon demonstrates how over and over again Israel failed to keep the law. Salvation could not be found there. The purpose of the law was to lead the people to the only one who could perfectly keep the law in their place. And in the person of Christ, the presence of God and the word of God come together. As John 1 tells us, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. 
dwelt among us. And he is the one that Moses spoke of when Moses said that God will raise up for you a prophet like me from his brothers. And yet they rejected the prophet that Moses was talking about. So guess who's against the law? Who's against the law of Moses? Not Stephen. Again, history is his story. It's all about Jesus. But folks, it's a hard thing for selfish sinners who see themselves as the center of the story to be suddenly confronted with the fact that not only are they not the center of the story, they're the villains of the story. All apart from Christ are. And in their pride, they're totally resistant to that notion. Who wants to hear that? Yeah, life's a story. I agree with you. You're one of the bad guys. <laughs> no one likes that. And so Stephen gives them the hard truth in verse 51. You stiff-necked people. That's a way of saying you're prideful. You're stubborn. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and in ears. Now circumcision, physical circumcision was the, the physical mark on the, on the Jews that they were a part of the people of God. But But physical circumcision in and of itself is not an end in and of itself. It was pointing to greater realities, to matters of the heart. Stephen says you're uncircumcised in your heart and in your ears. You're not not getting it. Your heart is in the wrong place. You think you're part of the people of God and you're not. You're uncircumcised. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. By the way, it's very interesting what Stephen does here, the little verbal shift, right? And earlier in his speech, he talks about our fathers, right? Our fathers, right? This is our people. Now, by the time you get to the end of the sermon, Stephen is distancing himself, isn't he? Uh, he, He's distancing himself. He's talking about your fathers. Stephen's like, I want no part of this. These are not my people. I belong to the people of God, the true people of God, who are those that receive God's man. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is the final verdict of Stephen. You followed in the footsteps of your fathers. They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. They persecuted other prophets who came to them. And you are just like them. But guess what? You're even worse. You killed the one that the prophets pointed to. You accused me of blasphemy. You are the blasphemers. You are the lawbreakers. You destroyed the temple. Well, that leads to... My final thought, and that's case closed. Case closed. Well, verse 54, the audience proves Stephen's point. When they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. That, that, that is interesting language, grinding of the teeth. Not used very often. It is, it is used to speak of people who are in hell, who are in such anguish and anger over God. And they are gnashing their teeth. But it's interesting, in the midst of all the anger, all the hostility, all the shouting, all the death threats, how's Stephen doing? Stephen's doing just fine. He's got bigger things on his mind. Verse verse 55, 
he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Isn't that awesome? The glory of God. The same glory that Abraham saw, that Moses saw, that Solomon witnessed, and that the Jewish leaders totally missed. Stephen beholds God's glory, which means he beholds Jesus. And the text says that Jesus is there, not sitting, but standing at the right hand of God. One commentator puts it this way, like a man rising up from his chair to greet a friend, Jesus rose to greet Stephen. In a sense, this is the visual depiction of what all Christians want to hear when they meet their Savior face to face. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And it was also a reminder to Stephen that because Jesus was at the right hand of God on the throne of the universe, nothing could happen to him without the consent of his loving and sovereign heavenly father. Because, because Stephen stood for Jesus, Jesus is standing for Stephen. That's a beautiful thing. I, I think it's very fascinating that the very first martyr in the Christian church, we are, we are shown this. And I think this is meant to be of encouragement to the many, many more that would follow in Stephen's footsteps and be persecuted and face death. And here is Stephen. Though he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, Stephen fears no evil because Christ is with him and standing for him. They tried to put Stephen on trial and condemn him, but Stephen receives the ultimate vindication, as will all of God's people. And Stephen says in verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, the Son of Man in in Old Testament thought is this divine being, this divine figure that rules the universe. And he's declaring Jesus as ruler and God. And Stephen's audience responds in a way that all sinners ultimately want to respond to the things of God apart from the grace of God working in their hearts with hostility and rage. Idolaters do not like it when their precious idols are threatened. Helpful hint, the things that you get so angry for, that's a clue to what your idols are. When those idols are threatened, things get ugly, and the mob rushes Stephen, and they do exactly what their forefathers did. They kill another man who brought them God's word about the Messiah, proving their guilt. Verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He fell asleep. It's a, it's a euphemism for he died, but it's, but it's depicted in terms of, of peace because he's dying in Christ. And notice Stephen follows in the path of Jesus, not only in suffering and dying, but also in loving his enemies to the very end. Just as Jesus on the cross prayed for the salvation of his killers, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen does the same thing. What great love and what great compassion this man had. Who is able to do such a thing without being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? No one can do that. Not on their own. 
And this is just another piece of evidence that God was with Stephen. And I love it because Stephen was an evangelist, but he was an evangelist to the very end. Even as he's dying, he's hoping, he's pleading with God for the salvation of these sinners. Oh, that I would have a heart more like that. (sighs) He cries out to God to save his executioners and to open their eyes to the truth. And little did Stephen know that as he was praying for them to be saved, that just a stone's throw away stood an angry young man named Saul who approved of the execution. And as Stephen prayed that prayer, God even then had his eyes on Saul and not burning eyes of judgment, but compassionate eyes of grace and mercy as he says, that's my man. God would answer Stephen's prayer beyond his wildest dreams. But that's another story for another day. If you're here as an unbeliever, it is my hope and prayer that God has spoken to you in this message, that you might recognize what Stephen was trying to say, that life is not about you. It's not about your agenda. It's not about your goals. It's not about your preferences. It's not about your kingdom. You're not the main character of the story. Get over yourself. I say it in love. Get over yourself. History is his story. And you're not a hero in the story. Jesus is the hero. You're a villain who's rebelled against him. And you may not like to hear that any more than those members of the Sanhedrin like to hear it. But the great plot twist in the story is that Jesus did not come to kill the villains. He came to save them. And he came to be killed by them taking the punishment for their sins to save them and, 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 and turn them from villains into good and loyal subjects of the King of Kings. So will you receive Jesus today as leader and savior? Will you recognize him as the center of the story and do all you can to orient your life and your story around his? And I promise you, I promise you that he can write a much better story for you than you ever could. And the endings are always happy for those who are His. There are happy endings in Christ. If you're a Christian, I hope that you're encouraged by Stephen's courage, Stephen's witness, and Stephen's Christ-centered focus. And I hope that you were encouraged by the fact that just as Jesus rising and welcoming Stephen into heaven uh, at the end of all of his trials and hardships, that, that you can expect the same welcome The same approval as you enter into the joy of your master. So knowing that, knowing that, having that reality in your mind, may you go all out for Jesus in the time that he has given you here, in the short time that you have had. However many more years God gives you, share the gospel, love others, give yourself sacrificially for the good of those around you without fear, without timidity, and with great hope knowing that if all you have is Christ, you have all you need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this incredible sermon, not my sermon, Stephen's. Thank you for the truth that he laid on us in that message that you gave him. And I pray that you would help us all, whether believer or unbeliever in this room, I pray that you'd help us all to take these matters to heart. 
And that all of us more and more would have our hearts lined up with Jesus Christ and his story and his agenda and what he is doing, which is far better than anything that we could dream up. May we bend the knee and submit to you. And may every single person in this room place their hope in Jesus Christ so that one day we too can enter into the joy of our master. In Jesus' name, amen.